Hi everyone. So as you may know already, we will be hosting an online watch party soon. We'll be watching Tall Tales on Tuesday, August 3rd. We'll meet at 8 p.m. Eastern time and press play together at about 8.15 p.m. Once the episode is over, we're going to stay around and chat for a little bit. So you're invited to that. Yeah, of course. And so this event is free and it won't be recorded. You can register using the link in the episode description, or you can find that link on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. And Drew, just making sure this will be your first time watching Tall Tales, right? I know of the episode only in the sense that I need to see it. And apparently it's very special. So I'm excited. I'm grabbing drinks. I'm grabbing snacks. I encourage everyone to do the same and let's get comfortable and let's get on the road or a sofa. (laughs) We hope to see you there. (laughs) See you there. Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 8, Crossroads Blues. Let's get this show on the road. Drew, we are finally at the episode where we introduce the crossroads. What did you think? I think it's a fantastic intro. You know, like you you even messaged me beforehand, like the amount of lore in this episode is just so, mm, so good. Oh, I'm like just so excited to dive into our critical times. We can talk about all the lore we get in this episode, but we have so much to talk about because it's also just a great story episode. And I mean, like truly a really fun episode. Definitely a good one. Certainly a foundational one. So let's get to it so that we can get to critical time. How about we get started with your recap? Will you count me down? And three, two, one, go. We start with a fantastic blues singer in a bar who is trying to play, but is being distracted by something outside. He does the only thing that is, you know, smart to do when something outside is trying to get inside and get you. He goes outside all by himself alone. I just, mm, so many mm, tropes. Locks himself up, tries to hide from whatever this thing coming after him is, and then eventually does get got. We don't ever see it, but he seems to be taken. Uh, We then cut to the present day. It seems something very similar is happening, and the brothers right away make the connection of black dogs or hellhounds. Something's after these people, but no one can see it. We know all these signs, and they eventually figure out that someone has made a deal with the devil at the crossroads as they get to this bar where everything sort of started. Uh, They try to save the person who started it, who doesn't want to be saved. They try to save the only person who is currently still alive that we know of, and they are successful because Dean actually tries to make a deal with the devil, but ends up trapping the devil and learns about his father and how John made a deal to save him, which he always kind of knew, but now he knows for sure. I think that's everything time. Woohoo! That was good. Who <laughs> was coming close there? There's a lot. I mean, I didn't even get to go into the fact that we do kind of see flashbacks here and there of Robert Johnson, who right away, and we'll get more into it, especially in critical time is a real person and is legitimately thought to have made a deal at the crossroads because he could not play guitar and then suddenly could play guitar and then died mysteriously young. Again, this is when I really love what Supernatural does. This kind of legend. Oh, this, this is, this is my bread and butter. It's actually really interesting because it plays on, on like our 
unknown of this person, right? Shall we jump into the long game? Yes. So what are the major points we should be uh, keeping an eye out for this episode? Like you mentioned, there's a lot of lore in this episode that we're introduced to. Some of this is Crossroads deals, goofer dust, hellhounds. Is there anything else that I'm thinking that I, that I might have forgotten? Because I, I think I think this is the roundup, but like that's that's a lot. I'll be honest, looking at this list, I did not think goofer dust would stay around. I kind of thought there'd be a one-off for this episode, kind of dealing with the hoodoo origins of the deal-making, but I'm intrigued to know that it remains. It remains every time that they discuss hellhounds, essentially. So whenever there's a hellhound around, there's goofer dust. And I think that this is pretty cool. It's an homage to this episode and, and to the and to the culture that brings it to us, right? I really do like that. I'm That's, that's impressive that they would carry that through like this. Good for them? One thing to note, though, is that Obviously, because this is supernatural and because it's a TV show, the lore will evolve over time. And for those who have seen the series already, you know that the way that hellhounds kill their victims in this episode is not quite the way that they kill their victims later on. So here we see them just like being taken away somewhere. And we, we, we assume that it's they're, they're taken to hell. But in future episodes, the hellhounds just like quite literally shred their victims to death. Okay, I was curious to know if one you would reveal to me or if you were going to hold it as a secret. Uh, given that what it is, I don't think that's very shocking. Like I kind of assumed that's what happened to the doctor in this episode who was killed. Well, I mean, you saw you saw that, for example, like Robert Johnson, he didn't get shredded by by dogs, right? He died of some sort of heart attack or, or, or stroke or, or whatever, like something killed him, but it wasn't, wasn't the dogs themselves. Interesting. And I will ask you to remind me in case I miss it, but when we get into the lore of hellhounds, I do definitely want to touch on that. Okay. Amazing. Noted. Another thing that I want us to note is Dean's line that says, this guy's got one epic bill come due. Hope he at least asked for something fun. I'm not going to comment on this, but we'll revisit this in season three. I want us to pay particular attention here to the fact that the Crossroads Demon is trying to get Dean to make a deal in order to bring John back. And that this deal would bring his own soul, like Dean's soul, to hell. And this we will revisit in season four. And this one, I know a little bit more. I understand why that might be more powerful or relevant but I, I i won't say anything i i won't say anything but i but interesting to think about there's different ways to see something that happens in like season four to understand it and i think that this is really important to know that already here in season two john has just died and they're the demons are trying to get dean to switch places with him so let's keep that in mind with these uh, wise words let's move on to story time so jumping into story time, the first thing I want to touch on, Dean doesn't know what MySpace is. It's an onion of layers of comedy to this. You know, that's accurate. So again, like to put a little bit of context for our listeners, MySpace would have been a very big thing in 2006. I can share a personal anecdote. In 2006, I was in my, what we in Quebec would call the first year of Sejap, which forever, for everybody else, 
in the world would be the last year of high school. I was meeting new kids in a completely different context. And like I had gone to a very conservative high school and now I was in this liberal arts college. So obviously like I wanted to be just like the cool kids. And the first time that I heard about MySpace was around that time, probably a little bit like Dean, like what, what's MySpace? But except like I didn't want to show that I didn't know what it was. So I was like, oh yeah, yeah, of course I know about MySpace. Like I just haven't made one yet. Like it's, it's fine. So yeah. So obviously I uh, went home that night and uh, created a MySpace account. That is adorable. <laughs> I can just picture it. To get back to the point about Dean though, like what, what does that mean to you? I mean, it's a lack of connection to modern culture. I mean, uh, to give an example, that would be like someone today not knowing TikTok. And I'm not talking not being on TikTok. I'm saying like has never heard of it. You're definitely right. And uh, and I think that that speaks to like what we've been talking about a little bit lately about how isolated Dean is from general pop culture, I suppose, or modern pop culture, because he has a lot of pop culture from the 80s and the 70s, as we also discussed recently, right? You know, he probably didn't use a computer much. He probably, like, from the sounds of it, his research has always sort of been through John or through libraries, as we've seen them both do countless times. He doesn't really get the vibe of being a very... I feel like tech savvy is the wrong word. I think web savvy might be a better term to use. In a pinch, he's good with a machine if need be, but I don't think Dean really has a web presence, which sounds like a weird thing to say for a character in a show about hunting demons in the year 2006, but it goes to show that he's not sort of like up with the times as far as what's popular because he hasn't really moved to that generation of being online. There's also a little something about this that like Jensen is not particularly tech savvy. You know, something in the way he portrays himself, I can kind of believe that. (laughs) We've seen over the years, like um, the characters do things that the actors would have done. So like putting a little bit of like the the actor's personality into the character. And um, I can't help but wonder if that's not like a little jab at Jensen directly. And Jensen, as always, like plays it in such a wonderful, graceful, beautiful way. So now when the boys actually get to George's apartment, Dean sort of berates him. Like we're, we're switching gears entirely here, but like Dean berates him for like going for the wrong shaker and sort of tells him that he should be using salt in order to protect himself. And he says, like, that's not, like, is that pepper? And then George tells him that he's actually using goofer dust. And when the boys kind of look at him, like, you know, clearly not getting what he's saying, he goes, you boys think you know something about something, but not goofer dust? And, like, I don't know about you, but to me it was just, like, such a beautiful moment of cultural clash. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think for one, it definitely shows that there is even in the world of supernatural and also literally in the world of people who deal with the supernatural, there is different upbringing, culture, uh, myth, lore, legend, and ways of dealing with things because clearly they had never heard of it, but also clearly it works. Exactly. Like on the one hand, you've got like these young white boys who have been trained by their dad and like raised to think that they're exceptional in many ways and think that they know everything there's to know uh, about hunting because they've done it for longer than most hunters their age. But like on the other hand, you've got an older black man who was taught hoodoo by his grandmother. And I, I cannot help but see like on one side, like the patriarchal white-centric way of doing things in contrast with, like, 
a more matriarchal way of passing down knowledge in a very, very small and very safe way that sort of confronts the boys with the idea that maybe like their white-centric patriarchal ways aren't the only way or even the best way to deal with things. And that's a great point to bring up. Like, I didn't even, like, I think right away on the very surface level, I right away saw it as the, like, a clash of cultures and that your way isn't the only way, nor is it the best way. I think the way you presented it here and the way the show really seems to present it, that's a very strong message, and I really like that. Well, I mean, I don't know. I have some thoughts about the way that George is presented, which we'll get into in critical time, but I think that this was a nice message that obviously was very soft, right? Like, it wasn't pushed. It was portrayed in a way to make sure that the white audience would be comfortable in seeing this. Now, we're seeing that Dean is having trouble empathizing with the people that he's helping. And I think here even more so than usual. We saw it in like Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, uh, with Andrea's father. And we're seeing it now with basically every victim of the Hellhounds. Like all the three victims that he quote unquote interacts with or is made aware of, like he just feels like these people brought suffering upon themselves and should just deal with the consequences of their choices. And I mean, given the scenario we've discussed, especially this season with Dean knowing what he knows and also as he reveals, there's a part of him that truly believes that John did make a deal with a, a devil, let alone yellow eyes, to save him, that he feels that there is a level of you know, like he said, you've made your bed, now lie in it. I don't think that's what George says that, honestly. He, he he agrees. He's basically saying these people were greedy and made a terrible decision and basically put their foot in the bear trap. Why should I be empathetic that their foot hurts? He's having trouble empathizing. I'm not, I'm not saying that his logic is unsound. I'm saying that this is something that's happening. I'm just thinking about how Dean is dealing with like a lot of stuff and big feelings at the moment. I guess this kind of reminded me of the saying, you know, like what you passionately hate most about other people is usually what you hate most about yourself too. Dean feels like he should have reaped the consequences of of life or his actions, meaning that like he should be dead and not John. Right? Like, I feel like this is what's happening in his mind. Yeah, multiple times that we've gone over this image of Dean where he feels that he should not be there anymore, that he should have paid the price for one of his actions. Unlike these people who, I guess, almost did it in reverse, where they made a deal to get something and gave up their life down the line. Dean is in the reverse where he was, his life was taken from him, but someone else made the choice of, no, we're saving you now against his will, essentially. I think in his interaction with George more than anyone else, he really sees himself in the fact that this is someone who knows what they've done, has accepted their fate, and is ready for it. You know, like, he's holding off to finish his last painting because he feels like a, he has something he's not done with. But once that's done, he is going to remove that goover dust. He's going to open that door, and he's going to face what, you know, he summoned. And this sort of reminds me of Dean and Faith. Yeah. You said that we see it mostly clearly with George, but I would also argue that there's a really, really important conversation happening with Evan. When when they're talking with Evan and figuring out like what happened exactly, like Dean is the first one to kind of center the experience of Evan's wife. 
he goes like, what if she knew how much it cost? What if she knew it cost you your soul? How do you think she would feel? So in this case, I think Dean is projecting. Not that that's a bad thing and not that he's wrong, but like since he can't verbalize how he's feeling, he's finding other ways to externalize it, right? So like he, for again, like as we've discussed multiple times, cannot talk to Sam about what's happening with him. So he's finding, so these emotions have to come out in one way or another and they're coming out of him projecting onto Evan's wife and saying like, how do you think she would feel? if she knew about this. You know, like he's expressing basically like his own anger for the deal that he is now getting confirmation that John made to save his life. And I want to talk about Sam a little bit here because like Sam is sort of letting it happen. Usually when Dean crosses a line, he stops him right away. Like even before he's about to cross the line or like right as he does, like he stops him. He kind of lets him go. It's, it's a little out of character for Sam, you're right. And I'm wondering if that isn't... Sam realizing what's going on and letting him get it out. Yes. So that's also my read. Honestly, like that's how I see it. I really see it as Sam understanding that this is the only way that he has right now to connect to Dean when it comes to the loss of their dad, because Dean doesn't want to talk about it. And like, basically, like, this is Sam's way of being able to see that Dean is also grieving, which is what Sam needs in order to grieve himself. Like, he needs that exchange, that connection. And so, like, he's letting Dean externalize his own grief and anger because he needs to hear it. Hmm. These poor, poor kids. I know. My babies. Ugh. And, and actually, sorry. I just remembered something else. Like, oh, no, it's because like, this is also like, I think that this is really proved in the text later because like in the next scene, when he tries to talk to Dean, Dean shuts him down. Like Sam tries to have the exact same conversation with him about the same topic and Dean cannot have it. He can only have the conversation when it's not about him. Dean is the person who would deal with puppet therapy so well, I imagine. Oh, Dean. You know that there's actually a scene of puppet therapy in, in Supernatural? Oh, I cannot wait. <laughs> with a character that you are going to love. You're going to love this character. I'm oh. so excited. I cannot wait for puppet therapy in any form. It to me is gold. <laughs> and Dean hates every second of it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course he does. But you know it would work so well on him. Oh, my God. I... And the worst part is it does work. Like what they use the puppet <laughs> therapy for, it actually does work, which is absolutely fantastic, um, if I may say so myself. Tell me this is like season three or four, right? I'm going to get it like within the no, year. No, no. This is in like season like seven. <laughs> Or eight or something. <laughs> <laughs> One day we'll make it there. I, I, I know. We'll get there. Let's move on to the Crossroads Demon. Because I feel like this is also super important to discuss. When the Crossroads Demon is trying to get Dean to make the deal to bring John back, like, do you think Dean actually considers it? At first, no. I really felt this whole thing was an act and he was just playing into her hand because he had a trap laid out. At the end, when Sam confronts him about it and he just turns on the music louder, it just... I mean, he's already made it very clear that he's accepted his fate and that when presented with the end of his life, he feels he's reached it twice now. So being given an out to actually make his death worth something and bring back someone who he feels deserves life more than himself, 
Can you blame him for at least considering it for a minute? Oh, I'm not blaming him for considering it at all. I'm just saying that, again, this is another instance of Dean not being able to verbalize something. And also, let's look at Sam here for a second again. Because we know why Dean shuts down, and and we can empathize with it, as we've just done. But I want to talk about Sam, who's on the other end of it. It's really easy to empathize with Dean, the way that we're reading him on this podcast. But I want to make sure that we also center Sam's experience, because... He must be feeling like he's getting stonewalled here. And like, that's just the worst feeling. And so I guess I just want us to hold a little bit of space for Sam, who's also dealing with like the loss of his dad, the loss of his girlfriend just a year ago. And at this point, a brother who can't connect to him emotionally. It doesn't feel like Dean is trying to connect. It feels like he's very much trying to repress everything. And when it comes out, it's very much in angry bursts. Him shutting down is basically him acknowledging something. It's it's interesting because essentially if something serious comes up, Dean's reactions tend to either be joke or silence. And silence generally leans towards the answer you're expecting but don't want to hear versus joking, which is the I just want to brush this off for a later date. So we are going to take the sentence, write it down, print it, blow it up and frame it because that is the most accurate way to describe how Dean reacts to real raw things. I hate when I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) The show makes being right the worst. Yeah, no, but that's true. Like the only way that he deals with realness is by either joking about it or not being able to respond by with silence. Bah. That's all I have to say to that. Uh, The last thing I did want to touch on here, though, is throughout the episode, it's made clear that the first two out of four people who've made wishes have already been killed. Despite them going after Evan to save him, they make no mention of trying to save George. So is this Dean and Sam, because it's kind of on both of them, accepting that George wants to end his life and letting him? Okay, that's a very interesting question. I think for Dean, it's just a question of like, he feels so much like George, like that he doesn't really want to intervene. So then my other question then is, I feel like conversationally, there isn't really an opportunity for Sam to bring it up. So it really comes down to Dean at the time of making the deal. Is it just Dean's choice then? Does Sam... Had it been Sam, would Sam have said, oh, and also, you know, on top of not killing Evan, don't kill George? Or was that very much, it was basically, was it, was it both them saying, yes, George's death is okay, or just Dean? You know, I think I, the thing is, my thoughts about this are mostly about critical time. And so I'm having, like, they're critical thoughts, not so much narrative thoughts. I'm having trouble explaining it narratively. I think at the point where they make the deal, George is like we are supposed to understand that George has already been taken by the hellhounds. Oh, I didn't even consider that. So I I think that that's what happened the, or that's the way at least that I understood it. Okay, okay. In in that case it definitely changes it a little bit, okay. Well, with that then do you want to get into critical time so we can discuss it more? Let's do it. So here we are in critical time. And as always, the new Critical Time theme every episode is, who was our writer and director? 
The writer of this episode was Sarah Gamble, who, if I may remind you, has written Bloodlust on her own, and then in season one with Ryle Tucker, has written Dead in the Water, Faith, Nightmare, and Salvation. Uh, so this is somebody who has given us some really good episodes so far. Always on the problematic side, though, so I'm not too surprised with this one. <laughs> and the director is Steve Boyum. So this is actually his first Supernatural episode in terms of, uh, of director, but he does come back to direct some pretty big episodes later on actually so let's keep our our eyes peeled for steve oh interesting i always i always like an introduction to somebody it's always a good like because again do, uh, as we said with the writing yes there's some problems we'll get into but directorial directorially there are some very interesting aspects again one of my favorite things to come back to are the you know don't show us the creature let it say a mystery and I mean, they take that very literally here. We are, again, dealing with, for the second time, a literal invisible force. And I kind of like that because it lets you play with the fact that it can be anywhere. It can be any size. It doesn't really have to obey any real rules. So, like, you know, it's knocking in a door in one second. And the next second, it's in the vents. Like, I like that. One other thing that I noticed, actually, about the production specifically, and this is interesting because we have an, a, a quote-unquote new director here, is that the camera style was really different. I Definitely notice it during the attack scenes because I feel like it definitely a shakier camera, more close up and more odd angles kind of builds that claustrophobia like something's coming to get you. And given the fact that a lot of the shots were designed to be, especially I'm looking back at the scene of um, when the doctor finally gets attacked and she is it's almost like a first person view. It's a little bit of that Jaws thing where it's you're seeing it from the point of view of the thing attacking her, which lets you a hide it because at that point we don't even know they're invisible. We just haven't seen it yet. And that's the first hint we get is that we don't see the claw when it actually makes contact, but it sort of helps keep it a mystery, but still give us this really good, like creepy angle and view. I agree with everything that you said. And I think that this is just so interesting because it gives a voice to the production itself, which so far we hadn't quite seen like a, specific style apart from like the visual the colors filter that's on on every on every episode like this this was interesting because like the the camera style had personality like there was a story being told just with the shots that were composed and I just I think that that's really obviously because I'm because I for the for the fun story the Sejep that I went to the program that I did was actually in cinema and communication and so like this is the kind of stuff that like I love nerding out about because I don't get to do that regularly and so yeah so there was truly like a story being told with the camera and I think that that's really very very cool and that's one thing that I wish had happened more in the in the series like we don't see that happen often we do see it sometimes sporadically but this is like one of the first times that they really tried it and coming from another uh Seja film student because that's also what I basically ended up in that's the kind of stuff I love about the show especially in critical time and like it's why I was so impressed the last time we talked about it at the beginning of this season with the soundscaping of um in my time of dying just having the the no footsteps or having the very like echoey hallways like those are sound choices that help represent the story it's just it's nice when camera work and sound work can do more than just be blunt absolutely like they are tools to tell your story with if you're not using those tools like then you're missing out on a part of the story being told i encourage listeners when you're watching films something i've just a quick aside when i watch bad movies like when i'm watching a movie especially like a really bad horror movie and you're just like i've checked out this is awful i can predict everything start looking for 
when the camera gets really different or when the sound changes drastically or the lighting changes, the color or the tone, those are really interesting things to look for and see how they're used. And usually in a good story or in a good movie, you won't notice it. It'll be a part of the story. And so that's why it's really interesting to start noticing it in in movies that you're not enjoying because you start paying more attention and that sort of trains your eye and your ears to pay more attention during those good movies as well. Would you like to tell us about lore in this episode? I would. What is your line about that was not yarrow? So when they're at the crossroads, they point to these like yellow flowers and they're like, oh, it's yarrow. And like, that's not yarrow. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. They just misnamed it. I wonder, like I now kind of want to go look up a yarrow and see if it has any lore relevance and why they would not use it. But I think that's like more than we need to. But weren't you drinking yarrow tea? Yes, I'm drinking yarrow tea right now. (laughs) (laughs) it's it's fantastic it's it it apparently helps with with digestive issues and menstrual cycle issues i i like to have it it's it tastes a little bit bitter so you do need a little bit of sweetener in this either honey or something i usually also mix it with some um some chamomile that was not yarrow like the flowers were way too big like the flowers the flowers on yarrow looks look a lot like queen anne's lace yeah so that was just like a little note about the fact that that was not yarrow that we saw but if we do want to dig into lore there is a lot of lore to go into here and i wanted to pick up on a few very key ones the first one is the story of robert johnson as told in this episode, for the most part, is true to the legends. The actual song played in the episode about the crossroads is the only known recording of Robert Johnson performing that song and literally wrote a song and has, like Dean said, many occult references to devils and making deals with the devil in crossroads and hellhounds. So it does make sense why so many people speculated that he had made a deal with the devil at a crossroads, like his song said, to gain his abilities because he literally went from being a nobody to a brilliant guitarist overnight. And I just think letting us have that real world connection to the story helps give it such weight. I think I just want to make sure that we're mentioning here that one of the reasons why we know so little about Robert Johnson is because he was a black man in America in the what, the 1950s? Is that what it is? The reason why we don't know that much about it is not because he was this absolute mysterious man. It's because white people did not record his life well enough for, for us to be able to know to know anything about him today. No, that's very true, and I think should be recognized. You are right. A lot of cultures do benefit and do rely on passing down of stories, but this is a sign of when all we really have is the story, which I don't think should be negated, but at the same time is played off as being mysterious and a legend and a myth because record-keeping was a very white thing at the time. And I mean, for the most part, still very much is. Another thing about that that I would like to mention is like this idea that he became excellent at guitar overnight. Again, like I can't help but put on my like critical glasses on here and be like, well, did he get good overnight or did he just get good? And then white people were like, oh, how did he get so good? It's impossible that a black man would be this good at guitar. But honestly, I feel like 
a lot of that also feeds into the idea that like some very racist tropes in media of like the magical black man, you know, like the like the mysterious black man in the 50s or and even to a certain degree George, right? Like I mean, he talks about hoodoo, mentions it a little bit. Like we don't know how much he knows. We don't like he still remains very mysterious about this. And I just find that this sort of feeds into tropes that I'm I'm really not a fan of. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see where you're coming from. These are problematic tropes that I just think at the time it was considered a, look, we're highlighting a black character versus, hey, we're putting in a token black character and, you know, filling in a trope essentially, which is just as problematic as vilifying them like we've seen them do already. Exactly. Exactly. Like if, if the only black characters that you have are, are basically tropes and stereotypes, then really like, do you have black characters or do you just have like black inserts? Anyway, just some food for thought about that, because I I just thought that it was so interesting. Like I was also so excited to hear that Robert Johnson was a real person. And when, and I did look into him a little bit and the more I read, the more I was like, wow, this is like, this is this man's story as told through, through white eyes. There is another story in this episode that I kind of want to look at. I I don't want to steal the focus, but I do want to kind of cover a few more things in lore. Uh, And that is to borrow a term from another podcast. I enjoy thoroughly heck puppers. I'm gonna I'm gonna need an explainer there. <laughs> I'm just hellhounds is such a you know heavy term. I think heck puppers is just it's more cute and fun. And if you listen to Spirits podcast, that's the term they've coined to make them sound less da- dangerous. And I kind of think it is merited because the legends of hellhounds very much is an omen. They are an omen of something bad. They are almost a warning. In most legends, they themselves are not the bad thing. Yeah, there definitely is a lot of variety in that. There is definitely a lot of they're kind of like vampires in the sense of like so many cultures have their version of the hellhound or the black dogs. Most of the more common legends do tend to come from the British Isles, the UK, Scotland has a lot of legends of them. Uh, This is even why they've played a pretty heavy role in some of the Harry Potter books. I was going to say, I'm like, I mean, serious black. Yeah, serious. Oh, serious. Oh, no. I mean, that's that's a great example of the trope being turned on its head. You have this thing that, for all intent and purpose, is a symbol of doom and despair, and in the end, winds up being something positive. Is that related at all to the myth of Cerberus? Funny enough, I did not find much crossover with Cerberus, but I would not be surprised if it does have some connectivity in the idea that, again, very often cultures do see these hounds as either taking the soul to hell, guarding the souls that are in hell, uh, or acting like some sort of gatekeeper. So Cerberus would definitely fall into that, even if not explicitly stated. But I feel like I need to share one very specific example of the hellhound lore, and it is the example they use in the show for all of, like, 17 frames on screen. And that is when uh, Sam holds up a book, which Dean then comments on, and it is a photo, uh, it is a an illustration, sorry, not a photo, I wish, of the Norse legend depicting uh, Tyr and Fenrir. I've known about Fenrir. If anyone here has watched Thor Ragnarok, you know about Fenrir. It is literally a giant black dog of war. Uh, it is very vicious. It is basically just a killing machine. And as far as the lore goes, this is technically right. However, he was considered to be 
not a god in Norse mythology himself, but to be on the level of the gods because he was a godly creation. He was actually the child of Loki, which is a whole other can of worms to get into. But only one other god was brave enough to approach Fenrir and have any kind of relationship, which was Tyr, who was the god of war. I did not know this at the time, but in doing some research, I learned that Tyr was not just the god of war, but also the god of upholding law. Oh. So we have this Norse mythological character who is not very well known, who is very, for the people who do know Tyr, tend to know them as a destructive force, something chaotic, something that just kills indiscriminately. But in reality is also the god of just and balanced rules. The idea that if you've done something wrong and you should be punished for it, you the punishment has to be done. But if someone is punishing you for something you have not done or you know wrongly accused of, you should be protected. And ultimately, Tyr gets to a point where they're trying to trap Fenrir, and Fenrir says, I will not do anything for you unless you show that you trust me by placing your hand in my mouth. And all the gods go, you're just going to eat my hand. I'm not an idiot. And then Tyr realizes it's the only way. Like, we'll get what we want. We're all, all the gods will be safe and we will uphold our end of the bargain. But like, I have to do this. It has to be just. If we're asking him to do something and he's asking us to do something, it's only fair. So Tyr does ultimately lose his hand and Fenrir ultimately is caged and people are saved because of it. But this was Tyr holding up a bargain. A crossroads deal, one might say. Even more, I'd like to dig into the idea that this is a character who, like Dean, is often seen as this hunter or killer or fighter, very one note, but has a deeper side and truly believes in justice and balance. I know in recent episodes we've seen Dean's judgment sway a little bit incorrectly, but ultimately does feel like if there's a price to be paid, you do deserve to pay it. Now, Drew, would you call Dean a righteous man? In his current state, I don't think I could. (laughs) That's fine. This is a reference to later, by the way. Okay, yes, and again, like I said, I know a little bit about where Dean goes, so I think this plays into it nicely as a really... And again, it's one of those moments where, like, the number of... If you just Google, like, illustrations of, like, hellhounds or black dogs or... There are so many to pick from that for them to specifically choose that illustration with the title clearly on the page of Tyr and Fenrir feels to me like it was an intentional choice and not just the first thing that Google gave them. That's really interesting, Drew, because like there's another episode way later where there's a question of law and justice and punishment, etc. when it comes to Dean, too. So I just, I love this. This is excellent, and it's not something that I had ever picked up on. So thank you so much for bringing this up. So this week we have an email that we received from Luna. Let me read it out for you. Dear Carrying Wayward, hello, I'm Luna, and I've been a huge fan of Supernatural for seven years now, and right away, I want to tell you I absolutely love your podcast. I just binge listened to all the episodes in a weekend, and you guys are doing a great job. I actually have some thoughts on shapeshifters and the episode Skin, so I thought I'd email you and share because I'm a little too shy to send in a voicemail. First, we actually have seen a quote-unquote, good shapeshifter in season 13. There was the grief counselor shapeshifter who helped Sam, Dean, and Jack 
take out her ex-boyfriend shapeshifter who was killing her patients and she was definitely a contrast to other shapeshifters on the show. Second, I think shapeshifters are definitely a very interesting quote-unquote monster for the show to tackle because unlike werewolves or vampires, shapeshifters don't inherently have any reason to kill people. They don't need to consume humans like other monsters on the show. So unless the shapeshifters want to eliminate a person after taking their form, they don't actually have a reason to kill people, which is likely why we don't see them often and the show doesn't handle them because they can kind of be a gray area. I think this is part of why the episode's skin is so gruesome and gory, because unless the shapeshifter is very horrifically killing people, there isn't really any reason to stop it. Shapeshifters aren't inherently hurting people and don't have any biological need to which I think makes them an interesting contrast to other monsters on the show, but I would love to hear your thoughts on this because I know you both really enjoyed the episode's skin. I really love the podcast, keep up the great work, carrying on, Luna. May I begin with uh, tackling this in two parts? Of course. First, this is such a cute email. I love it. Oh, it's okay to be shy. I totally get it. I love how well written it is. I love signing off as carrying on. I could cry. <laughs> this is the cutest thing. And I'm just the blubber for a minute. <gasps> I, I wish <sighs> that there was video for this because honestly, like... Oh my God, heart-shaped eyes right now, everybody. <laughs> like, Drew is Drew is in a puddle right now. <laughs> oh, this is, this is like, my heartstrings are being played like a little, like, heart by a cartoon, like, baby with wings, like, Cupid style. <laughs> An angel? <laughs> a cherub, actually, is a, oh, a okay. whole other bucket of, oof, we can talk <laughs> angels later. That's, don't worry, when we get to angels, there is some lore to dig in there that you're not going to like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But... To tackle the second part of this, and this is the actual content of it, I agree with you, Luna, one million percent. I am so excited to get to season 13 because I do want to see these two shapeshifters because, like I said during the episode Skin, I think they're so brilliant that the show had to take the extra layer of making them gruesome and gross just so we would hate them as an audience so they could be a monster because you're right inherently they're not they're just i almost if i can like weirdly make a simile here they're kind of like the x-men in just that they're like people but different and for some reason we need to inherently not like them because they're different and have abilities we don't have when in reality they're just kind of like the shapeshifter and skin even says when he's coming a little bit clean there towards uh the end of the episode that they were no once normal and just changed evolved differently and Unfortunately, this one became a serial killer, but at the end of the day, you're right. They're not bad guys. They don't need to kill. They're not doing it because of some sort of natural need. In the case of Skin, he is just, she, it is just a murderer. Luna, thank you so much for this email. This is honestly like, yes, same, uh, same as Drew. Heart-shaped eyes. Very, very happy that you, because you said you were too shy to send in a, a voicemail, but I just really want to thank you for actually sending the email. We really do appreciate it. And it's really kind of you. And we, we, we love getting those. So thank you so, so much. And then to respond, it's true. Thank you so much for reminding me of the shape of the grief counselor in season 13, because it's true. I remember when we were doing, when we were, when we were recording skin, I was racking my brain just like trying to think of like a good shapeshifter and I couldn't think of anyone. And I think it's really telling that I couldn't remember her because this episode is one of the ones that I truly love because it digs into some really cool stuff. Oh, I can't wait. 
<laughs> and I think you're also very right. Um, there has to be a reason for us to dislike shapeshifters because otherwise they would just be considered like a different form of human beings, right? But I think that this is also really interesting about what makes a monster a monster. You know, like, is it because of who you are or is it because of the choices that you make? Because I think that this show's not really clear about that because sometimes it names humans as monsters because of the choices that they make and yet sometimes, like, just because of the nature of who they are and we saw that a little bit in Bloodlust, the, the, the quote-unquote monsters are considered to be monsters, And even at the end, it's not quite clear to me how the show defines what a monster is. So I think that that's really a theme that we should track throughout this podcast because I, I wonder, I really wonder. So thank you so much for bringing this into, uh, into our discussion. Yes, truly, again, just thank you. With that, shall we find ourselves a dead center of the crossroads and dig it up and bury a box containing our photo and a few other occult things and summon a very classically attractive female demon to inappropriately smooch to make a deal. <laughs> I've got the yarrow. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to get us started on your deal this, uh, this week? I think It's an obvious one because there is such a missed opportunity in this episode to partner with George. We finally have another character with a different background. Like you said, that entire scene, like I knew they weren't going to take George with them, but I think it would have been such a great arc to have George, you know, realize you're right. Like it's my fault. These people are dying. They made these deals, not understanding what I brought upon them. Let me use the last bit of life I have to save them. I think we could have even gotten a better ending where maybe the deal was George does as much as George's life is already forfeit. In some way, his sacrifice is not just a you made a deal with the devil, but actually gets to in some way help Dean trap the demon and make the deal that ultimately saves everything. I just think he was a very missed opportunity of a really good character that could have done a lot of really interesting lore building. It could have helped us bring in some more of that connection to the past uh, with just so much information that was just like, it was all right there on the table and they just chose not to use it. So I'm realizing now that our Crossroads deals are going to be very similar. So what would you, <laughs> what would you give up for more George? Again, feel like this episode suffered from another case of just we needed to we needed to fill time so here's other murders and other gruesome scenes i.e the doctor i think we could have gotten through the episode very well being made aware that she also got killed and there were some mentions of black dogs and oh she's clearly involved in some way but i don't think we needed to have a full like eight to ten minute scene of her panicking in a hotel room and dealing with haunted faces and noises and then being brutally murdered. Like I think I said it last week too. more story and narrative, less useless murders. <laughs> and especially considering that like she was the only woman of the group, the fact that it's her that we see dying again is problematic, but you know, again, that's a whole other, it's a whole other discussion, but I agree with you putting aside the fact that again, it's the only woman that actually ends up getting murdered. What I, what I liked about it is that we understand a little bit the effect that 
the hellhounds have on people. And I think that that is interesting lore building. Could that have been done differently? Sure. I think it could have been done with George. Yeah, absolutely. I think George could have filled that role as well as the like, what does it do? How do they work? Have him deal with it once or twice while they're there and then decide to join them and teach them about goof or dust, teach them about hoodoo, teach them about, you know, the deal, I I think would have just been a great moment. So I would also wish for more George, uh, because I I really do think that this was a a really wonderful character that I wish we had gotten to know a little bit more, especially, you know, given like the themes that he brought to this, to to the narrative. I think it was really interesting, Uh, but I am not going to go the route of not showing Dr. Perlman I would actually merge the characters of George and Evan. I can see both sides of it, okay. Because I kind of like the idea of having a character who, at the end of the day, I feel like the three of them, and I'm including, I'm kind of lumping in both the Doctor and the Architect, because I feel like the three deals are the made a deal that didn't work out the way you wanted it, but you're still going to pay for it made a deal, got what you wanted, which was very vain, and you're going to pay for it. And then finally, the selfless deal where you're going to give up yourself for someone who you feel deserves it more. So I feel like if you, yeah, I feel like if you merge George and Evan, it'd be really hard to do both unless you made one of the other two, either the doctor or the architect, fill the role of the like failed um, deal, which I think could still work in that case. Yeah, you know what? Like, I think I I really do think so. I think that there would need to be a little bit of shuffling there. But I I think that Evan is the one who gets the most screen time. And I really do think that that way we actually maximize the screen time of George if we merge the characters that way. True. Definitely a way to do it. And I do not doubt it could be done well. But yeah, I and you know, there was a part of me, too, that said, like, I want to go first because I'm really worried your deal is going to be more George and then mine's going to have to change. So I'm glad to know we can officially have the same deal and just discuss it differently. Yeah, of course. I mean, like that's because George was a really fun character. And I think that we both really like resonated with what he brought to the table. And we, we wanted more. We wanted more. <laughs> I just really liked him. I just, I want to see more diversity in the spiritual practices. As you already know, like this show is going to really focus on Christian lore. And and then everything else is sort of like a satellite to that Christian mythology. You know, the Norse gods and etc. really get treated as second to like God with a capital G. No, and I, I can definitely understand that in a confinement of even a 15 season show where you need to build lore and backstory and build the world and all that there has to definitely be decisions made that may not be the best for everyone as far as representation goes especially when catholic catholicism or christianity is the center so i'm okay with that especially given the fact that so much real life lore involves other religions doing the exact same thing to other religions You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigahu, and myself, Drew Shulman. This week, we'd like to thank Luna for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording or email at carryingwayward at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. Make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to grow our community. And until next week... Carry on, our wayward friends. Well, maybe we should start with our community message. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) 
I got ahead of myself there. Damn it. You just wanted to kiss the pretty lady. <laughs> She's really pretty. Okay. She is really Both. pretty. I know. <laughs> so with critical time wrapped up and some nice revelations, shall we hear what the community has to say? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you caught oh. me mid-yawn. I'm so sorry. 